Good morning, everybody. It's good to be up here and good to be with you all. Um, well, Blaise Pascal famously said one time, all men seek happiness. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Do we believe that? Is that, is that true? If so, humans are on a never-ending quest for joy and happiness, most like we've been created to do so. And is that, is that a good thing? Well, David, the psalmist David, seems to think so. Um, in fact, he encourages it. Uh, is this the right slide? Well, not quite yet, but in Psalm 32, 11, David says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright. And Psalm 16:11 makes it clear where to find this joy. In your presence, it says, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in God's presence and at his right hand is this joy that we are all looking for and seeking all the time, right? But what does that mean? What does that mean? Is this something that, like, how do we, how is joy given to us in God's presence? Is it something we have to be near God and then he gives it to us like a, you know, you must be present to win your prize kind of thing. Um, I remember as a kid when we would, we would go visit my grandma in Spokane, my mom's mom, and just a dear, sweet lady. And every time we would go, she had this white dish on the counter full of M&Ms. And I knew whenever we went, I, was, I just had permission to go take some M&Ms and eat them. And is that what we're talking about? We have to be in God's presence to get the M&Ms, right? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Like I have to be in Grandma's presence to get good things for her, from her? Well, I think that, that is true, right? That's true of God. There are blessings and good things He gives us. Psalm 103 tells us, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, heals your diseases. So we should remember the good things God gives us. And bless him for that. But I think, I think David's saying something else. What if when I went to my grandma's house, the candy dish was empty? That happened sometimes. I'd go and I'd, probably after my other cousins visited, I don't know, but it was empty. What if when I went to visit my grandma and that dish was empty, I pouted the whole weekend. I was just grumpy. And, wouldn't that be sad? That would just be... A, a clear indicator that it wasn't really my grandma that I loved to go visit. It was the M&M's, right? And if when I read that verse, in your presence is fullness of joy, and I think of primarily the things that God gives us, the good things God gives us, and there are many, the list would go on and on. That's like 10-year-old me going to visit my grandma and finding no M&M's and pouting, right? That's just sad. It's, you know, God himself, eh, you know, what, what are you going to give me, God? That, that's, that's not what we're talking about, right? That's not the, 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 the presence in his presence. That's not the joy we're talking about. I think David is saying that God himself is the fullness of joy. The joy comes from God's person, from who he is. And when we are near him, we experience that. And if that's true, then God himself, who he is, his character, his nature, is what we need to know. So we need to study. We need to learn. We need to tell ourselves what God's like from his word. And we need to, we need to study the attributes of God. 
So today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at one of God's attributes. We're going to look at the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Just personally, I need this. I need this on a regular basis. I just have a tendency to think of God as kind of upset with me. Not, kind of disappointed, right? Not ever really happy with me, but I don't think that's actually true in, in the scriptures, and we're going to look at that. Um, the Psalm, Psalm 145 that Jacob read this morning talks about pouring forth the fame of God's abundant goodness, right? And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about God's abundant goodness. We're going to pour forth his fame of his goodness. So we're going to look at um, God's goodness in the scriptures. Um, we're going to see it in a couple ways. First, we're going to define what we mean by God's goodness. Then we're going to look at the ways that God's goodness is displayed in the scriptures. And then we're going to look at how do we enjoy that goodness? How do we, how do we taste and see that the Lord is good? And before we go any further, I'm going to pray for us. God, it is, it is an impossible task to accurately and fully describe and declare your greatness and your goodness and who you are. Um, yet, how can we not? How can we not speak of the God who is so good and so high and lifted up? And um, I just pray that you would uh, give grace to um, us uh, finite creatures as we try to describe and comprehend the infinite God, the goodness that is beyond all measure. Amen. So what do we mean when we say God's goodness? That's probably one of the most common things we say about God. God is good, right? What do we mean? It? Yeah, all the time God is good. What do we mean by that? Do we mean of great quality and worth? You know, there's a couple different ways we could, we could mean the word good. It's a pretty vague word the way we use it in, in English. Um, Mark, 8, Mark 10, 18 tells, you know, it's where Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. That's not quite what we're talking about. We could talk about morally upright, as in good, and that's, again, not, not exactly what we're talking about. What I mean by good is this. This is a, this is a quote by a guy named Stephen Charnock. He was a um, Puritan pastor a long time ago. What we mean by the goodness of God is his inclination to deal well and bountifully with his creatures. His inclination to bless, his desire to deal kindly with people. Kind of like a father. And if you're a dad or a mom or any parent, you know um, there's just something awakened inside of a person when they become a father or a mother. The love for this little person that is sudden and inexplicable and total and really not at all based on what that person can do for you, right? Because it's a long time. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of years of that person being dependent 100% and really no material benefit comes to the parent <laughs> um, except the delight of just being a parent, right? You'd give anything for that baby. Anything the baby needed, you'd give it. You'd die for it without hesitation if it came to that. And that's just a fraction of the inclination of God and his heart to do good toward his people. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says, Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And Psalm 103 tells us, as the Father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So when we find in ourselves this inclination to, to do good to our kids, that is just a hint of God's goodness and kindness toward people. And that's what we mean. That's what I mean by inclination to deal well and bountifully. Just the proclivity to do good, to, do, to benefit this person. Um, I'm going to quote Stephen Charnock a lot because I read a really good book, part of a good book, that he wrote about the attributes of God and the goodness of God in particular. He says that, I think this is helpful, that God's goodness is the captain attribute. The captain attribute by which all of his other attributes are rendered a blessing to us. Does that make sense? I think we can see it in Exodus 33, 19 and, and 34 when God says uh, to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So he's going to make all his goodness pass before him. And here's when he actually does. What does he say about himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, or to the thousandth generation, another translation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means leave the guilty, means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the goodness that God describes is his tendency, basically, for all of his attributes to be directed toward blessing his people. Charnock again says, This attribute is so full of God that it doth deify all the rest and verify the adorableness of him. Think about it. If we, if we knew that God was all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, just, that's not necessarily a good thing for us, right? That could be really scary. If he's not good, that's, that's scary. Or even if God is merciful and gracious, but he's stingy with it, or it's, you know, down the list from his eagerness to mete out justice or holiness or righteousness, or that, you know, mercy has to be drawn out by excessive groveling. That's actually not not the God that's, that he just, that just, that's not how God describes himself in the scriptures. He's inclined to employ all of those things for our blessing, even his justice and righteousness and holiness. So we need a way to describe this aspect of God's character, right, that takes all of his character and directs it toward our good, and that's God's goodness. His wisdom might contrive against us, his power bear too hard upon us. One might be too hard for an ignorant, and the other too too mighty for an impotent creature. His holiness would scare an impure and guilty creature, but his goodness conducts them all for us and makes them all amiable to us. You know, inevitably, when someone's talking about God, they're going to use the, the illustration of Aslan. I'm sorry, it's just overused, but Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia is such a good, it's just so on point when the beavers say he's not safe, but he's good, right? Implying that if, you know, if Aslan weren't good, that'd be really Bad to be in his presence. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be eating the beavers. Um, but the fact that he's safe and, or he's good means that he directs his fearsomeness for their benefit. And that's God, right? 
Psalm 145, 6 and 7. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth, or eagerly utter, some versions say, the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You know, we may marvel at a God that's powerful and mighty. We might describe him as awesome. But if that God is mean-spirited, unpredictable, irritable, like the gods of, of, of the world, it wouldn't be a God whose fame we'd really be that eager to pour forth about, would it? Only a good God is one whose fame and greatness we would pour forth about or eagerly utter, as the psalm says, or sing aloud of God's goodness. This uh, captain attribute, as Charnock puts it, is as if directing all his other attributes toward blessing his creatures. That's what the Bible means by God's goodness. At least that's what we mean today. (laughs) Um, When we talk about God's attributes, we've got to remember that God is the very source and definition of that particular attribute. What do I mean by that? I mean, goodness isn't something that God takes on. Like, goodness is this trait out in, you know, out here that God um, acquires or gets better at or works on or grows at. Like, maybe you and I need to grow at being good. He just, he is goodness. The source of all goodness. Um... Probably like many of you, we, my family loves to jump in the river and swim in the river in the summer. And you could say that our river is wet. Not really in the same way that you would say that I'm wet after I jump in the river, right? <clears throat> Wetness is an inherent, char- inherent characteristic of a river. If I jump in a river, I get wet, but I don't become wetness, right? We're going to dry off, but the stream is the source. It's never never going to dry off, and I never will be the source of, of wetness. Um, and similarly, God isn't good because, you know, he's, he's so perfect, he, he scored 100% on the goodness test. As if goodness is this concept that he attained to. No, he invented goodness. In fact, goodness is just defined as a way to describe how God just is. God isn't good because he does good things. He is good. Anything else is good to the degree it mirrors his good character. And when we see goodness in the world, it's, it's a testament to, that's, that's God's world. That's, that's, that's hinting at the creator. And we almost have a hard time defining, but we know when we see it, don't we? Goodness, and, and we love it. And we, it's praiseworthy. So God's goodness, and we're going to talk about how God's goodness is displayed by using Nehemiah chapter 9 as, as kind of a home base. Um, don't worry, we're not going verse by verse through the whole chapter, but uh, Dave preached on this passage, the passage just before, a couple weeks ago. Um, and if you remember, it's when Israel, they've returned to their land um, from the exile. They've rebuilt Jerusalem. They were building the wall. They're, they read the law. Then they, they weep when they realize how far short they've fallen. And Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people, don't weep. Let's celebrate. We're going we're gonna to celebrate. God is good. Then they reinstitute the Feast of Booths. And it says that on the 24th day of the month, of the celebration of booths, Israel gets together in repentance with fasting and sackcloth, and they spend part of the day reading the law, and then confessing and worshiping, and um, and most of um, and then as part of part of this, the Levites stand up and lead everyone in a blessing of God. There's in, in verse five. We're oh, I'm way behind. Yeah, there we go. Verse five. Um, 
Then the Levites, and I'm going to name them all, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. We're going to get into this chapter bit by bit, but it's just a, it's a summary. And that's, that's kind of how we see God's goodness in the scriptures as a theme just throughout, right? And it's in over all of God's dealings with his people. Um, so we're going to get into a bit by bit, um, but uh, we're going to use this as just as a way to look at how God's goodness is displayed in the scriptures to his people. And we're going to see four things in how God displays his goodness and, and how the, the Levites recount it to the people. We're going to see it in, in how God, in God's creating, creating both the world, all things, and also creating his people Israel and, and establishing a relationship with them. And then um, kind of carrying them through. Um, and we're going to see it in how God blesses them, giving blessings to them, giving them good things, seeing them in their affliction and helping them. Um, we're going to see it, um, God's goodness in, in how he abounds in loving kindness. And finally, we're going to see God's goodness in, in judging, in his judgment. Um, there we go. So there's goodness in just creating, in God just creating, right? Nehemiah 6, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Goodness is, um, by definition, communicative, meaning it's the nature of goodness to express that goodness to another, to someone else, to some other object. I mean, think about that. It's, it's, goodness is sort of meaningless if you don't have a other to, to be good to, right? It's kind of hard to be good if you never interact with people. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. And God didn't need to create us, right? He wasn't lacking in anything. He was no less God without creating the world. Um, and the non-existent can't merit having goodness bestowed on them, right? So God, just by creating us, is communicating his goodness to us. You know, when we, when we build something or construct something, it's usually to benefit from it. Like we build a house, we live in it, it shelters us. Well, God isn't in need of anything, right? right? He doesn't need anything. He's not lonely. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't lacking. Um, the triune God from all eternity was, was sufficient and enough. Um, and in Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul tells us that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, strictly speaking, God doesn't gain anything by creating us. He doesn't have ulterior motives to receive anything from us other than just um, the joy of, of being the creator and being God and, and having a creation. Um, but his inclination to do good is not dependent on some sort of quid pro quo where he does good, we keep worshiping him. No, it's not like that. He's good because he's good is just what he is, right? And anything he gains from it is just the delight in expressing his goodness. Um, Charnock again says, He made the world for the manifestation of himself and the riches of his nature. 
not to make himself blessed, but to discover his own blessedness to his creatures and to communicate something of it to them. And God's goodness is evident just in the creation, isn't it? As we look around, you know, sunsets didn't have to be so beautiful, right? God, uh, pineapples didn't have to be so tasty. Lake Colchuk didn't have to be so spectacular. Grapes didn't have to ferment into wine. On and on. You know, God could have made the earth ugly and you know, sustains life, but not very beautiful. But creation all around us is filled with the goodness of God, just in, just in the way he's created the world. And when he was finished creating, what did he say about the creation? It's finished? No. He said, it's good. It is good. It's from the same, the same word that he used in uh, Exodus 33. Um, so God's goodness in creation is also expressed in just his, his creating and initiating a relationship with his people. We see that throughout the Old Testament. That's the story of the Bible, right? God reconciling a people to himself. Um, Nehemiah 7 and 8, 9, 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to, to, give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Now, God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to bless Israel like that. Um, last time I've, I was reading through the Old Testament, the thing that really stood out to me um, like never before, I guess, is just God's relationship with Israel. And I think, I don't know, I maybe by default always thought of it kind of as a partnership. Like, God, you know, maybe he does the heavy lifting and Israel follows, follows him and kind of does their part. And, um, but what just struck me is that <laughs> God's basically dragging Israel along. They keep stumbling and turning away and needing to be exiled and disciplined and the leaders are just pretty bad. Like, it's pretty even hard to find a guy you'd feel comfortable being named after, right? Like, oh, that guy is pretty good, but he did that. You know, they're all deeply flawed, and it's like God is, no, come on, we're going we're gonna to be in this relationship. It's like God is the only consistent thing, the only constant at all. Why did he go through all that trouble? Well, because he's good. He's good. And the Levites in, in Nehemiah 9 are remembering all that God did to preserve them, which leads to... Um, Second way, we see God's goodness and his blessing his people. His goodness can look like blessing and caring for his people too. Verse 9, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light, them for their, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments. 
And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and law, a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you'd sworn to give them. And this is God's, God's goodness that's just eager to bestow kindness, right? I mean, he had zero obligation to do any of this other than his word that he would do so, right? Charnock again. He sends not forth his blessings with an ill will. He doth not stay till they are squeezed from him. I love the imagery here. His pleasure in bestowing is larger than his creatures in possessing. Think about that. His pleasure in bestowing is larger than his creatures in possessing. In other words, he gives, what, he gives us what we need and more and delights to do so. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Luke, Luke 12, But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you're to eat or what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world eagerly seek after these things, and your Father knows that you, have, that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, don't worry about the little things like food and clothing. God's, God's got it. It's his good pleasure to give you not only everything you need, but the kingdom. I mean, in the context it's, it's of the passages, because you're putting your trust in God, who's good, and trusting his goodness to provide for you. Thus, you have a childlike faith that you're going to be taken care of. And wouldn't that be easier to do if we had a rock-solid faith in God's goodness, that he's good? Truly be convinced that God is good. You know, I can be generous over here because God's going to take care of me. He knows what I need. He's pleased to give me everything I need. Psalm 103, 13, and 14, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are but dust. He's eager to bless. God's eager to bless. A third way we see God's goodness displayed um, and discussed in this passage is in just his abounding and loving kindness. Verse 16 and through 19. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way and did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. So we see God's goodness in his abundant loving kindness and just his ready to forgive, readiness to forgive and his slowness to anger. I'm kind of take him as a pair. Ready to forgive and slow to anger. There's so much here. You know, <clears throat> so Israel's being led through the wilderness by God, right? 
only by God, delivering them from Egypt miraculously, giving them food from heaven, water out of rocks, even preserving their shoes. And they lose faith and they want to go back to Egypt and be under the slavery of, of the Egyptians again because it's, you know, it's predictable and there's a measure of safety in it and they don't have to trust God, right? And they make an idol and, of gold and worship it. But even in that, God is more than ready more, he's more ready to forgive than to forsake them. Now, this is the hard part when it, when it comes to talking about God because it seems like it's almost wrong to say, but the, you know, God's word makes it seem like and portrays God as quicker to mercy and forgiveness than to punishment. And I'm not saying that God's mercy is better than his justice or you know, God's goodness is not on display in his, in his justice. Um, I remember Dave's point last week that justice toward evil looks really good to the one who's being oppressed by evil. Not at all saying that God's judgment is, is less good than his, um, his mercy, but can we say that God seems more inclined to be merciful than to judge? I don't want to say it wrongly, but again, it's, it's a, a finite person trying to describe the infinite. You know, to be clear, God extends mercy toward the penitent the repentant, the soft-hearted, not the stiff-necked rebel, at least not in the same way. God's goodness and mercy to, to them looks more like patience, and we'll talk about that later. But could we say that eliciting God's grace and mercy is a whole lot easier than eliciting his anger, maybe? Maybe call it a blessed imbalance? I don't know. But just look at, look at the, the, the wording. Ready to forgive, but slow to anger. And those are kind of paired with each other, and they're not, they're not parallel in, in, in the same way. Like, you know, I mean, this, this is what God saw fit to communicate about himself, right? I am ready to forgive, and I am slow to anger. As if he's just eagerly waiting to forgive. He wants to forgive. He doesn't have to work up to it or come around to it. He's not slow to forgive. On the contrary, he is slow to anger. That's what he says about himself. He's not ready to get angry. He's not ready for the slightest you know, provocation. Like it just takes a lot for God to get angry. That's looks like to me from the scriptures. And if we flip those around, you know, slow to forgive and ready to get angry, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not how God describes himself. That's goodness. That's God's goodness. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See kind of both right there, right? He's, he's slow to get angry, and he's eager to forgive. You know, why doesn't God execute justice already, we may ask? Well, it's because he's slow to anger, and he's ready to forgive. He doesn't want any to perish. Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. In 1 Timothy 2, 4. Um, Paul talks about God desiring all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, um, 
What does ready to forgive look like? What does that look like in the scriptures? I think there's a, there's a couple things we could say that being ready to forgive means he's quick to forgive. Like it happens quickly. Like Luke 15, 20, the story of the prodigal son. And he arose and came to his father, the prodigal son did. You know, after coming to his senses, he's coming home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion to him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You get the impression that the father is he's eager to forgive. He's just longing for the opportunity to forgive. And he runs to his son, like doesn't even have a chance, the son doesn't even have a chance to get the words fully out of his mouth, and he's forgiven. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, so God's quick to forgive, and his forgiveness is frequent also. Matthew 18, 21 to 22, um, when, when he's talking to the disciples, Jesus is talking to the disciples, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You know, 70 times seven. That's Jesus saying, forgive like God forgives you, right? Be the kind of forgiver that mirrors God's forgiveness of you, frequent forgiveness. So ready to forgive is quick, it's frequent, it's abundant. And continuing in that same passage of Matthew 18, um, it's the parable of the debtor who owed, you know, like billions of dollars in our money. And, and he, he, begs, he begs for forgiveness on his knees and, and have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant releases him and forgave him the debt. Just to point out that when God forgives us, it's a mountain. It's a mountain of sins that he's forgiving it's not pocket change like we might have to forgive one of our friends or siblings. It's, it's a mountain. It's Mount Everest. <laughs> God's forgiveness is, is, is abundant. It's extravagant. And culminated, of course, by when Jesus is on the cross. Luke 23, 24. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That is some serious forgiveness. And it's some serious goodness. We see it in, in his readiness to forgive, and we also see it in his gracious, his gracious and merciful abundance of steadfast love. That's a lot of words. Um, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Uh, Nehemiah 9, 17. Yeah, there we go. And that's what's behind all this quickness to forgive. It's just a heart of mercy and grace, right? Paul describes God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You know, when, when, when Paul's describing God at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he's like, what's, going, what's a good way to describe God? The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's amazing. Of course, this is all embodied by Jesus, this gracious and merciful um, attitude. Acts 10.38 said, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Um, in Matthew 11, 28, 29, I'm sorry, we're really jumping around in the scriptures, aren't we? It's a lot, of, a lot of reading of verses. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, Thomas Goodwin 
says, men are apt to have contrary conceits or notions of Christ. But he tells them his disposition here. We are apt to think that he is being, he's being so holy is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, he says, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. And there are so many places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where we could see Jesus' compassion, his grace, his mercy, his steadfast love um, abounding. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 30 and 32, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowds because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. I mean, he's not just you know, thinking about preaching a sermon. He's, he's worried about their practical needs, about getting enough food. One of my favorites, Luke 7, 11 to 15. Soon afterward, he went into a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So she's in a bad way, right? Her husband's dead and all of her sons are dead. And a considerable crowd from the town is with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And here they are coming into this gate of the city, and they've got other business. And on the way, they pass this funeral procession, right? And I don't know if there was, you know, if everyone knew the situation, but Jesus knew this was the only son of a widow. And he stops and he heals. I mean, just the, the goodness and the compassion and mercy it's, it's amazing. So all these, you know, all of these verses to, to show how goodness is embodied in Jesus, and um, lest we forget, Jesus tells us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the goodness of Jesus, that's just the, the heart of God embodied in it, what it looks like in a human form, right? If God the Father were in human form, he'd, he'd look like Jesus. That's his heart toward us. You know, my default mode, like I said, is to think of God as severe, hard to please, slow to bless, and the opposite is true. The opposite is true. That's what we mean when we talk about God's goodness. He's good. Well, finally, we see God's goodness in his judging. His judging. Even in God's judging of sin, we see his goodness. And this is a long passage. Um, I'm going to read it, though. Sorry. Nehemiah 26, 9, 26 to 31. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. 
Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Uh, just the, the, way, the way that they summarize the just hundreds of years of history, and, and they turned away from you, and then they repented, and you welcomed them back, and they turned away, and, then, and you bore with them many years. I mean, it's, it really lays it out pretty plainly. It's God is the faithful one and the patient one, and Israel again and again, sinned and turned away. And there's goodness in judgment, right? Especially in this context when it's, it's God, the father of this people, judging like a father, disciplining like a father. I mean, we judge and discipline our kids out of love and out of love for them and out of a hope for better things, right? Hoping that, hoping that um, the that they can be turned away from the, the path that we know leads to sorrow. Um, as First Peter says, the unloving thing as a parent is, is not to discipline. Disciplining is loving in itself. And if God were not good, he would have ignored them or forsaken them, which is exactly what you know, the Levites say God didn't do. He didn't forsake them. He didn't make an end to them. But see how far Israel had to go before the heavy hammer fell. Oh man, I mean, so many times, over and over, and doesn't it just mirror our lives? We, so many times we, we stop believing God's goodness. We stop following him. We, we, we believe lies. We follow false gods. We, we do, um, we, we, we turn away. Yet he's always quick to forgive. There might be judgment in it. There might be punishment in it. Discipline. After all that, he did not make an end to them or forsake them. One more quote from Charnock. He sends not judgments without giving warnings. His justice is so far from extinguishing his goodness that his goodness rather shines out in the preparations of his justice. He gives men time and sends them messengers to persuade them to another temper of mind that he may change his hand and exercise his liberality when he threatened his severity. And when he does punish, the scriptures tell us that he doesn't do it with a relish or a delight. Lamentations 3, 31 to 36. I'm going to summarize it. But the Lord does, will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And remember the context. This is, this is after Jeremiah. This is after the, the exile, after the siege of Jerusalem. Really bad things have happened. And this is, this is Jeremiah describing God's heart. For he, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of the children of men. It wasn't his first choice to speak humanly, to judge that way, to bring justice, to bring punishment. Psalm 145.9, The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all his works. 
Um, Dean Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, points out that this merciful, gentle, gracious heart of Jesus, and also therefore God the Father, is beneath all that he does. Yes, God's holy. Yes, he punishes wickedness. Yes, we'd give a wrong picture of God if we left off that part and make it seem like all he does is mercy. And wrath is not at odds with goodness and mercy. But the point is that God's heart is gentle and lowly. His longing is to give mercy and show mercy, be gracious. What do we think of that? Is that biblical? I mean, we, we, we've just seen it. He did not make an end to them. He does not afflict from his heart. His mercy is over all his works. Yeah, that seem, seems like that's accurate. So what about unbelievers? Yes, that's, that's God's patience with, you could say, his children, right? What about unbelievers who are outside of God's covenant relationship? What about the Canaanites that God ordered Israel to wipe out? That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Well, Genesis 15, 16 tells us that this is when God is promising Abraham the promised land. He says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. In other words, his, his descendants. They're going to come back in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, when did that iniquity of the Amorites come to completion? More than 400 years later. It was a measured long-delayed judgment. It wasn't quick, and it was after an abundance of iniquity. It was after filling up the full measure of iniquity, much fuller than probably you or I would have waited if we were in God's place, right? Um, God was very slow in that judgment, but it was severe. In Matthew 5.45 tells us he makes the sun rise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's good to the people who hate him. God's good to the atheist who curses God. He sends rain, he sends blessings, common grace um, to everybody, even to the unrepentant. How amazing is that? The God who made us is good. Well, what do we do with that? This is what we do with it, I think. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Now this is the word good here. This is the same from the same root word that, that God uses of himself in Exodus 33, 19. When all my goodness is going to pass before you. Taste and see that God is actually good. And we can experience it. Taste and see that God is merciful and gracious. Taste and see that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's not enough for us to just be told and to, to learn about it theologically. We need, to, we need to experience it. We need to taste it. Well, how do we do that? And I think this verse is just a, a simple analogy. You know, how do, we, how do we taste food is good? We taste it, right? We can, we can plainly see that something's good just by tasting it or not good. Um... And I think the second half of the verse kind of gives us a clue as to what it, what it means to taste, taste God's goodness. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Uh, the word can also be translated trust in, take refuge in, trust in. Does that make it seem a little more, hit home a little better when we, if we were to say blessed is the one who trusts in God? Well, how do we do that? Well, I think our days, I think every day is spent 
kind of like spent looking for happiness, the corollary of that is we spend every day looking for refuge from something. Our, you know, and our instinct is to look for it in other things than God. We're looking for refuge from poverty, from want, refuge from earthly danger, refuge from sickness and death, refuge from the consequences of our sin. All those things we, we need refuge from. We actually do. But we find that refuge in God. And to trust in Him and to taste the blessedness of, of His goodness is to, is to take refuge in Him in all these things. Refuge from the want. From want, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Refuge in, the, in Him from the basic, for the basic necessities of life. Right? He knows the things that you need. Seek His kingdom and all these things will be added to you. He'll take care of you. Refuge from disapproval of others in his approval of us in Christ, right? Refuge from the condemnation of our sin in his justifying us through Christ. We're justified as a gift through Christ. And ultimately, refuge from death through Christ's resurrection. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. We've been granted refuge from all of these things that we need refuge from in God. I think that's what the psalmist means when he says, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in you. And that's how we taste and see God's goodness. We experience all that he is to us in Christ and the refuge that, that we have in God through Christ. All of those things are just the manifestations of God's goodness to us. I'm going to read this verse and close in prayer and we'll be done. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. God, we just stand in awe of your goodness. We know, we know ourselves a little bit. We know that we are not worthy of of your grace, um, you know us perfectly, um, and yet your, your approach to us is one of grace and goodness and patience and mercy. Even in your judgment of our deserved, of our sin, our deserved judgment of sin, um, you are merciful, you are slow, you are patient. We praise you and thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Amen.